Hello, and welcome to the Over the Horizon podcast on defense acquisitions. I'm Caitlin Thorne, and I'm here today with Brian Fredrickson, a career acquisitions officer and author of the research, The Laird Packard Way, Unpacking Defense Acquisition Policy. Brian, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. All right, so I know you've been doing a little bit of research. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about uh, what it's all about and um, you know what your inspiration for it was? Yeah, so I've, I've done the research research this year on David Packard, and a lot of people have been like, why are you doing research on David Packard? He was the co-founder of Hewlett Packard, um, so specifically towards defense acquisitions of Pentagon. We don't really think of his legacy in those terms. We think of his legacy as far as Silicon Valley, um, forming Silicon Valley, um, developing the HP way, you know, our printers and our laptops and those types of things are kind of what we probably view as, as his legacy. Um, but o- over the, my career, I've in reading a lot of uh, books and reports and stuff about acquisitions, you, s- you see his name pop up quite a bit. And you see his name pop up in two eras, uh, w- once in the late 60s and early 70s when he was de- Deputy Secretary of Defense, the number two man in the Pentagon, and once in the 80s when he uh, chaired the Packard Commission for President Reagan. And both of those chapters in uh, Packard's life, he, he exacted what I believe to be a lot of influence and a, and a lot of changes into the uh, way that the, the DOD procures weapon systems. Um, but I didn't know much about it. Like I, I had, you see his name kind of, he's like the, the man on the grassy knoll or he's kind of like the butler in a whodunit mystery. You see him, he pops up for a, a paragraph or two in most books and then you don't really see much else. So what I started looking for was a decisive history or a book on David Packard, something from his perspective that kind of, you know, put him as a protagonist, and I just couldn't find anything. Um, so this year, when I when I arrived here and I had the chance to do some research, um, I decided to, to to peel this, you know, onion a little more, um, and I got permission and funding to go up to the uh, OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense, the archives, uh, and get some primary source documentation. Um, dig into his folders when he was a deputy secretary uh, and really try to unpack what what he did during his first couple years uh, in the Pentagon. Um, I I had kind of had an ambitious vision and I wasn't able to achieve that vision so it's still a work in progress um, and I'm hoping to push this research out to a book length um, piece of research Um, and, and I my research is confined to 1969 to 1971 when he was deputy secretary, so it doesn't it doesn't go into the 80s. It doesn't go into the Packard Commission, um, but I think that um, it, it was very interesting to see the pieces that he kind of laid in the acquisition system at that point and the programs that he had influence into, and that's really what my research touches on is you know how he saw the defense acquisition system and how he kind of exacted policy reform to meet the goals of delivering capabilities to the field, which is a challenge that we continue to face, we'll always face, whether it's 50 years ago. Um, so it's his approach, not the platforms, that I really try to focus on in this study. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you chose David Packard um, you know, to research. Um, what I want to ask you, though, is how would you apply what you've learned about David Packard in his life and some of the policies um, that he put in place. How would you apply that to today's um, acquisition reform and the calls for perhaps uh, faster defense acquisitions? Uh, so that's a really good question. It's really, it's a, it's a really complicated question. I, I think that there's some fundamental um, lessons we can pull from Packard's legacy, though, that 
we can we can really take as good examples with you know as stakeholders in the acquisition system. Um, I think uh, first and foremost, Packard was a a uh, fly before buy. That was his approach to acquisition, and, and what that means is that. Um, he demanded to see the performance of the system before he would commit to production. Um, this seems like a common sense thing, and it's this common sense thing that we do as individuals within a capitalist society and as a free market society. Um, but it's something that the defense industry, um, it's not really the way that we procure weapon systems. And there's a practice in defense procurement, it's known as concurrency, and I touch on that in my report. And concurrency is the deliberate overlap between um, development of a system and production of a system. And, and it's designed specifically for that. The F-35 program, for instance, out, uh, out the gate was a, a system that's designed to be um, a concurrent program. So we have 200 some odd of these aircraft that have been produced, but it's still being tested at the test site. And they do this for a number of reasons. Um, and Packard stepped into the Pentagon, um, and th they were applying this approach to two big programs. And he really pulled a lot of lessons out of those programs. Um, so he identified concurrency as a problem. He said, this is something that we can't tolerate if we're going to modernize the force. And that was his stance on it. I think there's some disagreement in history over whether you can run an acquisition system without much concurrency. Um, but his legacy shows that you, you can um, do a fly before buy approach. And, and what that means is essentially you maintain competition much later uh, in, in the system until you actually commit your resources to production. And uh, so um, Packard identifies concurrency and he actually identifies three problems with the defense acquisition and concurrency is one of those problems. The other problem, the second problem he identifies is he says, hey, we're trying to procure systems that are too complex and ambitious. And within their system architectures, they're baselined out the gate as, hey, we're going to have all these 10 or 15 different technology areas, all these different subsystems that are going to be cutting edge, and we're going to pull those magically all together. And with specific regard to overly ambitious projects, um, he, he really didn't like programs where you tie together the propulsion system of an airframe, the air vehicle, or the air, aircraft itself, and the avionics of the aircraft. And when we look at a system as a, you know, a buyer of that system, we say, hey, I want to buy a plane. And we look at it as one big system. And what Packard did is he really started seeing um, high definition in, into that. He was an engineer. He was a very technical person from Silicon Valley. And what he wanted to do, essentially, to maintain control in the acquisition process was not give out big contracts for airplane per se. He wanted to give out a propulsion contract, he wanted to give out an airframe contract, and he wanted to give out an avionics contract. And the joke about avionics contract was he wouldn't, he wouldn't even make one at the beginning. He'd say, hey, we're, we're moving at the speed of Moore's law for electronics. The propulsion system, the airframe, those take a long time to make, but electronics, you know, we, we, don't, we can't baseline this into the system architecture until much later in the development of this aircraft. So um, that was the second problem he saw was overly ambitious and complex programs that had all these requirements baseline, baseline in from the start. So again, number one was concurrency. He tried to combat that from the start. Number two was um, uh, overly complex designs. And then number three, uh, it's kind of a finger pointed at the military, but he said, hey, there's too much turnover 
in key positions in program management in the military. And not only is there too much turnover, um, it's poorly timed turnover. It's detached from key milestone, it's detached from key events. Um, so about five months into the job, he gives this speech about the three problems that he says of defense acquisition. He says, hey, I need the services. I need you guys to keep your program managers in place for a long time. I need you guys to make sure that your key decision makers are in place at key decision, key decision points in the program. And by having this continuity, you know, like at Hewlett Packard, he's all about, it's all about the people, it's about the management. So um, concurrency, complexity, and, and poor management were the three charters that he had to kind of address. And by packaging it as these three problems, um, he, I think it was really an effective way to communicate across the, uh, the DOD acquisition enterprise um, because it was clear what he thought the problem was. And I can delve a little more into that. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, it's interesting that he pointed out those three problems. Those three problems that he identified in, what, the late 70s? Late 60s. Late 60s, um, you know, were, was he successful in addressing these problems at that time? Because it really seems like those three problems are still problems even today. Um, so, so how would he? So, after he identified these three problems, how did he go about actually enacting them and putting them into place? Yeah, so that that is like the million dollar question, right? Is is how did he do it? And and my argument and my research are based off of what I found is that. He did. He did effectively counter those while he was in the Pentagon. However, when he went back to Silicon Valley in 1971, um, a lot of his reform movement, uh, it maintained momentum for a few more years after he was gone. Um, but the way that he, he countered it was organizational changes with OSD. Um, he also did um, uh, empowered the military services more to manage their own programs. That was another big step he took. And then the third step was he did a, a very aggressive program by program approach to reform. So a lot of us think of as far as acquisition policy that you, you publish new policy and then the changes take place. But when we study Packer's legacy, we find that the policy is actually follows all of the changes and implementation or as he implements it, he kind of does this battle by battle, you know, program by program. And then um, in his third year, he, he implements the original version of DOD 5000. One, which is a, at, at that point in time a seven-page document. As you know, at this point in time, it's you know whatever hundred fifty some pages, um, and has get, been getting longer and longer. Um, but really, when he steps into the Pentagon, he has a huge challenge, and that challenge is, is he's the the defense acquisition system is in a gridlock, as you say, maybe today, and then. They, they really need to modernize the force. Their forces have been uh, drained by this protracted war in Southeast Asia called Viet the Vietnam War, and Russia is on the rise, and Russia has been modernizing very rapidly. In their, uh, 1967, they unveiled uh, nine new aircraft. So as far as how, how did Packard address these problems, he started program by program. So he inherited two troubled programs. The first program was the F-111. It was a joint acquisition program initially. The Navy kind of escaped out of it and the Air Force went forward with it. And uh, that program was characterized by concurrency, was characterized by um, complexity, and was characterized by 
um, poor program management. It was held at the Pentagon. And then the C5 Galaxy Mobility Platform. So what he did with those two programs actually is is a very hard line on it. He um, cut back the procurement of those two programs. And at the same time, what he did is he launched um, a series of advanced prototype initiative programs um, to bring more competition into the space in the 70s. And what these were were very small expenditure programs. They weren't considered weapon systems. They were considered advanced prototype uh, demonstrators. So what he was really looking for is um, in, in the lightweight fighter arena, in the close air support arena, in the tactical mobility arena, he wanted more competition in that space. So he, he created prototyping competitions across the board for those. Those three prototyping competitions um, resulted in you know, the rise of the A-10, the, the F-18, the F-16, the C-17. Um, and that's really what he did to try to counter um, counter what was wrong with the system was adding more competition into the system. So do you believe that by um, today um, putting in some of his his same um, principles that he advocated for back in the 60s that we could possibly start to reduce DOD acquisition timelines because that's the biggest problem right now. I think we've got the technology, we've got the innovation, it's just the timelines to procure uh, the technology to the warfighter have just lengthened exponentially uh, since David Packard's time. So uh, how can we today start to um, pull from David Packard's principles and start to put this into play today to shorten these acquisition timelines? Um, yeah, so I, I think Packard's legacy indicates it comes down to competition and you need to keep competition in place for as long as possible. And it also comes down to maintaining leverage as a service in the political sphere, the political arena, by slicing and dicing contracts mm -hmm. to be smaller. So I think what the DOD is really looking for, as you're saying, is a more responsive system. Right. Or a system that, um, and for us as consumers, that usually comes down to, do I have other choices available? When the DOD as a buyer has no other choice available, then the system feels very non-responsive to us. It doesn't have to happen at the integration level, but I think if you saw uh, competitions, uh, perhaps the second engine for the F-35A, you know, this is just a notional thing. I know politically that's been shot down, but the the second engine being entered into, there's an awesome book called The uh, the Great Engine War with uh, the F-16, and they introduced the second engine, uh, the, a GE engine, into the mix. and it, and all of a sudden you took this, this really tenuous position or uh, situation with Pratt and Whitney and you turned it into a competitive space between GE and Pratt and Whitney. And all of a sudden you see performance gains, you see cost decreases because you have what, what is American. The American way to do is to let companies compete and to let the merits of that design come out. Um, so I think that's what really what Packard would be looking to do. He would be looking to take small chunks of money targeted at specific systems and know that those investment timelines take different amounts of time mm -hmm. and not committing, uh, I think at Hewlett Packard, one of his mainstay, the ways he did business at Hewlett Packard was um, he, he enabled his R&D divisions to create prototypes and he had no, you know, no vested interest to see what type of shape the prototypes he created were. But the, the moment that him or he, Bill Hewlett stepped in, step into the room was when that production or that prototype 
was nearing a production decision. Because at that point, you need to mobilize your organization's full resources or a lot more of them to shift a program into production. So I think he was looking for this, the same thing to do sitting in the Pentagon, was to essentially ensure that um, we don't commit resources to production until they, we, are, we are more sure of their performance and more sure of their costs and stuff like that. So you mentioned in your research that uh, we need to slow things down to speed things up. Is this, is this kind of what you're referring to um, when you say they need more competition and we need to um, you know, take a, a closer look at all the options available before we you know, choose the path we're going to go down? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the bigger thoughts I had towards the end of the research was this, this notion as military leaders were trained to make very quick information in a very rapidly changing decision space, um, you know, to, to make a decision in, in the fog and friction of an operation or of battle. Um, and in the acquisition space, I think what Packard shows us is that in order to make a good decision there, in order, if you're going to push your, your chips in the table, you actually need to reserve, you know, that decision. You need to hold it back. You need to exert strategic patience. You need to make sure that the technology that you're investing in is um, mature. You need to make sure that it's, you know, we say milestone B or we have milestones. But really, that's a that's a ambiguous. It's an interpretation, there, you know, and, and I think it, it relies on us to be more prudent with that decision and when we go forward. And when we talk about a new system, weapon system, we really need to say, hey, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be pulling. And I talk about this. Uh, David Packard's hobby was gardening. Um, and, and when we when we make our salad, when we make our meal, we need to be able to go out and have options and pick those options and assemble them when they're ready. And if something's not ready, um, you know, we shouldn't be baselining into that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't tell someone five years out that we're going to make a, a salad with, with, you know, strawberries and, and carrots and celery and whatever that's not grown. We need to, you know, integrate systems that are all mature enough to, with certainty that we can put them on the menu of options and we can put those on the plate for the warfighter um, and not rely on, um, you know, the weakest link is what I call it. You know, you go to a test site, you work on an acquisition program, and when you have multiple systems under design, under development, you have multiple systems breaking. And, and there's always a part that has a problem, and when you have this diffuse supply chain, it really slows everything down because you need all these systems to be working at the same time. And when all of these systems aren't mature, you're really just waiting. You know, you could have nine out of ninety out of your hundred systems good, but if you don't have those ten systems, well, you're not meeting the requirements. We can't, you know, we can't proceed to the next round of, of testing, or we have to hold until this this system is ready. Um, and and I know America in the past has benefited greatly from being ambitious, um, and, and I think that. Um, there, there is merit to being ambitious, but I think it's a selective ambitious, say an ambition in a propulsion system or an ambition in a new set of control laws or a new style of air vehicle per se or a new whatever. There, there's um, a way to be risky, um, but then there's also a way to pool the pieces together for production, you know, when, when they're ready to be produced. So 
So are you advocating for, you know, some ambitious programs to take, um, you know, longer um, than we would need to field? So, for instance, maybe uh, a program that's overly ambitious takes, you know, 20-plus years to eventually mature the technology. And also for programs that are, you know, shorter in nature, uh, but the technology is much more mature so that you can faster and more quickly integrate it into uh, some kind of um, you know, production article that will eventually get out to, to the field. So basically what you're saying is some you know, shorter timelines for already very mature systems mm-hmm. and then some ambitious systems that uh, we could probably work towards in, in the long run. Exactly, yeah. Good. Yeah, so if you're talking about a, a next generation platform, when Packard comes in and he's chartered not just with modernizing the force, but taking the force from the third generation into the fourth generation of, you know, air power to think long term, to think strategically, mm-hmm. um, exactly what you just said. He, he, he um, sends a, a lot of prototyping initiatives, and those are very ambitious prototyping initiatives, but he has no, made no production, no production guarantees. He, has, yeah. he, he says, we don't know how these will pan out, we planted these in our greenhouse mm-hmm. and and I'm not going to make a decision on production and maybe in 10 or 15 years the world will be a different place and someone can make a decision on whether those plants have grown you know yeah. hey we're going to walk you over here we're going to walk you over here we're going to walk you over here and this is what we have you know in the hopper yeah um and I and I think that you know that that's the problem is to slow things down really means we need to think strategic yeah. and long term um, we will feel the system be more responsive when there are more options available to senior decision makers, but that doesn't happen overnight. And, and that's what I, I kind of get to as, as far as addressing the fundamental challenges and how Packard addresses the fundamental challenges. He's not looking for the quick answer, he's looking for the, the right answer. So, Brian, let's switch gears here a little bit. So you spent about 10 months doing this research, and and I think um, you pretty much totally engrossed yourself in researching David Packard's life, almost to the point where you took up some of his hobbies on the side, such as gardening, I think I, I read. Um, so what I want to ask you is how has Packard's life fundamentally changed the way you will go into uh, your next job and being a program manager and working acquisitions. What what nuggets have you taken from the way David Packard has approached acquisitions to um, your own career? Yeah, absolutely. You jo- yeah, you joke, and my wife's seen this happen full fold work. I don't know if I got like this uh, what Stockholm syndrome with uh, you start researching, researching someone, you get so into it. Um, a- absolutely, I took up gardening. Uh, as soon as the last frost was here in Alabama, um, I started planning stuff and I was knee deep in research. Um, but I really wanted to, this is how Packard spent his free time. He spent his free time and, and, uh, and a lot of other military leaders in history we've studied and leaders in general. Um, a lot of really good leaders are gardeners. I'm like, man, this is, a, this is something I'm missing out on, right? Because I haven't, I can't garden anything. And, and uh, um, yeah, so. Packard really influenced me, his legacy really influenced me in that way, and, and what I realized is gardening is, it's a, it's a cerebral thing, you have to think ahead. There's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. The only shortcut you can really take is, is, is um, you know, h- how much sunlight or how much water or how much nutrients you give, and, and that's really what we do, I think, as leaders, is we have, you know, we all work in greenhouses and we all have plants around us, the other people. And um, I can see how Packard, if he spent his time and he was a, he knew all about gardening and ranching and stuff like that. And I could really see how it influenced his way on, 
on um, you know how he built his business. I could really see um, you know how he thought about things. Uh, he didn't think about things happening overnight. Now, now, now. Um, when you when you plant something in the spring and you're waiting you know for it to come full you know in the late summer or fall, um, again, there's no shortcut to that. You just got to show up every day. Um, you got to water those plants. You got to make sure you're, you know you're pruning. You got to make sure you're pulling weeds. Um, and you got to make sure you're providing an environment for that plant to reach, reach its full potential. And I think that's really, it's funny, right, as an acquisition officer, you're like, well, what can you take with that with acquisition? Well, I think in this information age, there's really this, this, this uh, juncture that we're at where we're, we're operating industrial age tools that are now merged, you know, with information age technologies. Um, but you can't really shortcut a lot of this industrial age component of systems, um, of propulsion systems, of flight control systems, of navigational uh, navigational systems, of the hardware piece of this, right? You, you really can't shortcut it. It's, it's like gardening and you're trying to plant these trees. And, and I think of senior decision makers, you know, if we view that as an apple tree or an orange tree, um, that, that's a long-term thing. I view the information age as a bunch of leafy greens. I, you can grow and eat those leafy greens in only a few months. And, and I think that that's really what we get into this expectation of how things, quickly things move in the information age. But I really think we need to marry that back up with the fact that some of the, some of the crops that we rely on, we still need to, to grow like trees. Um, and then where do we bring those together? Where do we bring that information age tool, that electronic system and digital system, and when do we marry it up with our, with our trees? You know? and, and you certainly wouldn't plant those at the same time. And, and that was interesting to me as so when I try to think of you know, basil, arugula, and all these things, cucumbers I was going to plant, yeah, your arugula is going to be ready before your, your cucumbers are going to be ready. You know? and, and that's common sense. Um, but I think our acquisition system expects those things, the cucumbers to be ready when the yeah. arugula is ready, even when they're not. Gardening analogy is interesting, and it brings about another aspect of acquisitions that have, has been talked about a lot, and that's risk. Um, it seems like throughout the past few decades that the DOD has gotten more uh, risk adverse. Uh, which has in turn caused acquisition timelines to increase. Uh, being inside David Packer's head, having done the research on his life, um, what is your view on what his risk tolerance was, as I would say, as compared to today's risk tolerance for the products that we field? Yeah, Packard, well, Packard had a huge risk tolerance, but it was hedged against a diverse, what I call a diverse ecosystem. So if you look at how he grew Hewlett Packard, when he left Hewlett Packard, you know, he's a billionaire in today's terms, age 57. He has nothing left to prove. His, at HP, he, he, uh, Hewlett and Packard developed this, this ground up, bottom up way of innovating with 2,000 different products. Mm -hmm. And when you think about that number of products, that diversity, that diversity of ecosystem, that diversity of choice for them to vector resources towards, because that's what they're producing is production. Yep. But that doesn't account for all the prototypes that they're they're saying no to. Um, so when you talk about risk, he certainly developed a, a, a system where he could take risks because his his company didn't rely on any one product, and that's how he I think hedged against that risk. Yeah, and I think that ties into what you were saying earlier as far as we need more options on the table. 
um, in order to move faster in our acquisition process. Okay, that's interesting. Um, all right, so we're kind of running out of time here. Um, so before we wrap up, I do want to put a plug in for a future book publication that you're planning on. Uh, can you elaborate on, um, you know, what this, the book will be about and how it ties into your research and, and maybe when a tentative publication date is set? Yeah, no, I, I don't have a publisher yet, but I haven't written the full story yet. And I, I definitely would like... Um, to share this story, the story of David Packard, and particularly his legacy within the Pentagon. I think a lot of us, again, and if you look in the bookshelves, what you'll find is you'll find a couple good books on Hewlett Packard. You'll find, uh, you know, his own memoirs, the H.P. Way. You'll find um, Bill and Dave. But as far as, like, this this Pentagon legacy, it's really lost. So what, uh, what I'm shooting to do is to create essentially a biography on, of David Packard, Packard that's focused on his contributions to the DOD and the, DO, the way DOD buys weapons. Um, and I hope to have that done within the next year here or so. And my follow-on assignment, I'll continue to do the research. Um, and then uh, excited to, you know, float it out there to um, maybe some publishers or maybe team with a talented writer that can uh, help the story come to life. Uh, right now, it's kind of in a researchy form, and uh, it's worth skimming. But, um, uh, yeah, I look forward to writing the full book. Yeah, awesome. Well, Brian, uh, I want to thank you for being with, here, with us here today. Uh, your research is extremely interesting. I really haven't seen much written about um, David Packard and how he's influenced DOD acquisitions. So I look forward to uh, reading more about it in your future book. So thank you again for being here. Thanks for having me.